Amen. Thanks, Matt. Um, I haven't met you yet. Uh, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Covenant. I'm just so grateful that you are joining us today. Uh, we're going to have several scripture readings uh, for today, as, as today's sermon is going to be a, a bit more topical. Uh, but our first, our main scripture reading is going to come from the book of Job, and I invite you to turn there with me. Um, I'll be reading just various passages, and so um, I'll call out the verse number so you can kind of skip down um, as, as I do. Uh, but I'll be in Job 38 through 40. If you're not really familiar with where the book of Job is, it's, it's right near the book of Psalms, actually the book before Psalms. And so if you know where Psalms is, it's right in the middle of your Bible, just go to the book right before that. And I'll be reading from Job 38, just various passages from Job 38 through 40. And of course, I read these things trusting that, that this word comes to us today inspired by the very Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, it comes to us with authority and with power, the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were teaching us. So let's hear together the word of Christ. Job 38, verse 1 and 2. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, saying, Who is this that darkens the counsel by the words without knowledge? Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you knew. Verse 8, or who shut the sea in with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made the clouds, its garment and thick darkness, its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, thus shall you come and no farther, and here you shall, here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place? Verse 33, do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are, who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? In chapter 39, verse 26, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it by your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high, or the rock dwells and makes his uh, and makes his, uh, his uh, home in the rocky crag? From there he spies out its prey; his eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up the blood where the slain are. There he is. And the Lord said to Job, or chapter forty, verse one: Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered and said, Behold, I am of small account, and what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. This is the word of the Lord. We're starting a new sermon series today that we're calling Questions People Ask. I've been excited about this sermon series for many months, and obviously, originally today, we uh, weren't going to talk about what we are talking about today. We were going to be talking about uh, why Christians often can be so argumentative, why they can so often be against things, um, why it seems like Christians are against more than they are for things. Uh, but of course, in, in light of this moment that we find ourselves in, in light of this global pandemic, 
Uh, we thought it would be good to take just one week at least during this series and speak kind of directly at this and, and, and ask a question that I think maybe a lot of us are asking right now. Why would a good God allow for a global pandemic? Of course, this isn't a new question. The, the coronavirus makes us ask it in, in a new way. It makes us ask it in maybe a different way. But this really is an old question. And, and the question is, why would a good God allow so much pain and suffering in the world? Why would a good God allow the world uh, to suffer in such uh, a real way as we see pain and suffering around us all the time? And of course, this is one of the reasons that many of you no longer believe in God. In fact, most of the conversations I have with people that don't believe in God, it's, it is this. It, it's, they, they say, look, there can't be the God of the Bible and so much pain and suffering in the world. It, this may be the reason that maybe you, you still kind of believe, but, but your faith's not what it used to be. You were really following the Lord. You, you really had a dynamic prayer life, and then some tragedy hit. You, you got sick with something. You, you got a divorce. You lost a job. A pastor that you really counted on really let you down. And from that moment to this, it's, it's really been hard for you to believe in the goodness of God. It's been hard of you to hold on to the power of God. It's, it's, been, hard of you, it's been hard for you to believe that God really is concerned with you and with your life. Of course, the argument goes, people say that you, you can't have the good, the God of the Bible, this good and all-powerful God, and suffering exists, people will say, because if, if suffering exists and that God is good, well, he, he may be good, but he's not all-powerful, right? If he, if he realizes suffering and he feels bad about it, he may be all good, but he can't be all-powerful because he, maybe he can't do anything about it. Or if the God is all-powerful and suffering exists, well, then he can't be good, because he could do something about it. And why on earth would, would this all-good and all-powerful God not just stop these things? Why would he allow things like the coronavirus to persist and, and for there to be countless uh, measures of loss and pain and death? So, so how do we respond to all this? What's a Christian supposed to answer when, when this question comes your way? And I think what I want to do today, and what we're going to be doing the same thing over the next few weeks that we look at all these questions, is, is give you a few anchors, a few things that we, we understand and we believe as believers, a few anchors, a few big rocks, if you will, that in order to kind of maneuver some of these difficult places that we find ourselves, you have to be able to hold on to these things. Pain and suffering, it's, it's hard to deal with. But, but I want you to understand that the Bible kind of knows this. The Bible, even though it's going to end, we believe, with the victory of Christ, it's still a, a word that, that, that tells us that there is a time for mourning. There, the Bible still tells us that there's still time to be still and to be quiet. The, the Bible still tells us that there's times to just sit with someone in pain and to endure that with them. But in order to get through pain... In order to really understand suffering, again, I want to give you a couple of anchors here that you're going to need in order to endure this crisis with a great deal of faith. And the, the first anchor, the first place I want to go is, is the glory of God and providence. You've got to understand that God is working things for his glory, and you've got to understand this, this big idea of providence. 
You've heard me say before that the most basic thought that most of us have, the, the very foundational thought that most of us have is wrong, or else it'll, it'll lead us to a, a wrong understanding of the world. The French philosopher René Descartes has this famous phrase. He says, I think, therefore, I am. Right? I, I think, therefore, I am. I know that I exist because I can have a thought. I, I know that I exist because I am aware of my own reality. I am primarily aware of my own reality, of my own existence. Therefore, I know that I exist. And, and this thought, this idea, I think, therefore, I am, that, that all of us kind of can identify with, this wrongly leads us to believe that, that we really are at the center of the universe. This wrongly leads us to believe that, that really everything is kind of about us, my existence. I understand my existence, so I'm going to interpret everything from my existence. And, and so even this question, how can there be a good God that allows so much suffering, it, it actually assumes that you're looking at the world from a place of most importance. It, it, it assumes that you're actually looking at the world as if you are determining who is good and who is bad. Can't you see the, the perspective that you have to have to even ask the question? How can God behave this way? How can he be good? Who's determining good in that scenario? Our, our posture so often is, look, I determine what's good. I determine what's right. I think, therefore, I am. And, and I like to see the world in the way I like to see it. And God better behave in the way that I think he should behave or I'm going to quit believing in him. But don't you see how problematic that is? Don't you see how backwards that is? Don't you see um, that it fails to recognize your, your right place in the universe, that, that ultimately you aren't in the center of the universe, that, that ultimately we're pretty small? This is what God is saying to Job, Job is questioning God in the same kind of way. And God says, where were you at the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I put all of this in place? Did you create the way of an eagle? <laughs> did you create the way of the hawk? Did, did you create the seas? Do you control the seasons, Job? Do you have any idea what you are talking about? Do you have any idea what you're asking here? And I love Job's response. It's this the way that we should respond when we have that kind of clarity. He says, I'm just going to cover my mouth. I'm just going to be quiet now. And so in order to understand pain and, and suffering, I think, first of all, our minds have to shift. We can't approach life from this Descartian kind of we are in the center of the universe way. No, we have to realize that God is in the middle of the universe and that his ways are higher than our ways and that he is actually working out things according to his purpose and for his own glory. But we, we are a people that we don't just believe that God is working things for his glory. We, we are people that believe that God is involved in what he's created. We're not just deists, right? We don't just believe that God set up the world and he let it run. No, we're actually, we actually believe, Christians actually believe that God is involved in the things that he's created. We are theists. And, and his involvement in what we talk about, his governance of the things that he created... We actually call his providence. This is a big thing that you have to understand in times like this. The old Heidelberg Catechism defines providence like this. It says, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them 
that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, flood and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but out of his fatherly hand. See, Christians don't think that the coronavirus caught God off guard. It's not that God is scrambling, saying, oh man, I didn't see this one coming. I didn't expect this one to happen. This has really gotten bad. I don't know what I can do here. No, no, no. We believe that in God's providence, by God's governance, even this bad thing, even this difficult thing, even this very tragic thing, he's actually involved with, and he is achieving something glorious in this. Even though right now we may not be able to understand what God is doing, I just want to give you a word to my fellow believers here. You know, you you can't Romans 8.28 your way out of everything very quickly. What I mean by that is, you know, Romans 8.28, it says, all things work together for the good of those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. The, The truth is God is working all things together for good. Ultimately, God is going to work all things together for your good if you love God and you're called according to his purpose. Ultimately, eventually, in his timing, But, you know, I I know a lot of Christians, and I used to be this Christian, that anytime something bad would happen to me, I would say, well, you know, I I didn't make this team, but it's because I'm going to make this team, or this girl broke up with me because a better girl's going to go out with me. And and I was always looking around the corner for the silver lining, for the next right thing. This this other good thing, this better thing must happen. I just want to say that that can be incredibly exhausting. The better resolution as a Christian is just to trust in the providential care of God and to know that eventually and providentially over all of his creation, he is using even even the hard things that we endure, even the difficult things we endure, he is going to work them out for good. He is achieving his purposes. And one day, and it may not be for another 40,000 years when we're in his new heavens and new earth, we will understand these things. But God is working through all these things. He is providentially in control. But yet, Christians also believe that God is not to blame for evil and suffering. He works through it, he uses it, but he's not to blame for it. Now, what do we mean by that? How is this possible? And this brings us to kind of the next anchor, the next big rock that I want you to hold on to. And this is this idea of the curse, sin and the curse. Remember the beginning of... um, or the scene in The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis, if you ever read that book in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this great scene uh, where Diggory Kirk, who's kind of the main character of that book, makes his way for the first time into Narnia. And I love this scene. He, he gets into Narnia. They, they just like land in Narnia, and he hears the singing. It's this singular voice that he hears singing, uh, and uh, he hears it in a distance, and it's dark, but then all of a sudden light begins to appear, and then all of a sudden uh, he hears other voices, and there's this chorus singing in harmony with one another, and and he realized what's happening. He realized that the voices that he's hearing are actually the stars and the blades of grass and the rock and the water, and, and what's happening is Aslan is there singing, and as he sings, he's calling into creation this place, this this place called Narnia. Actually, Diggory Kirk was there for the beginning of Narnia. He saw the thing come into being, and as it was coming into being, everything that existed in that place was singing together in this harmonious and beautiful chorus. And, and you see, that, that, that's an idea. I love this picture because that's what creation was meant to be. This is how God created the world. 
He called into existence all things that were to, if you will, sing together in harmony to reflect his goodness and his glory. But in order to know how good everything in creation was, there had to be at least a knowledge of bad. In order to know how right everything in creation was, there had to be at least a knowledge of wrong. In order for there to just be righteousness, there had to be at least a knowledge of evil. In order for there to be beauty, there had to be knowledge of not beauty. There had to be a knowledge of these things. And in God's design, this knowledge, this knowledge of good and evil was to be kept in a tree. By his command, it was to be kept in a tree. God commanded the man and the woman, don't eat of that tree. There is a knowledge that is anchoring all of this in place, but it's not for you to know. You're only supposed to know and experience my goodness. But if you know the story, and many of you do in Genesis 3, the man and the woman disobey. They, they gained a knowledge of evil. And this evil from that time to this has infected their hearts and our hearts and mind. In the beginning, I believe that the man and the woman rightly saw God as the center of the universe. They didn't see themselves as the center of the universe. The posture of Adam and Eve in the garden before sin wasn't, I think, therefore I am. It was, God is, therefore I am. God exists, and therefore I am. They they were actually more aware of him than they were of themselves, and they understood that he was in the center of the universe. They understood that his order was right, but of course, with sin, we've become incredibly self-aware. We've turned away from God being the anchor to our own selves being the anchor, our minds being the anchor, and this has infected all of us. You know, they don't know how the coronavirus entered the world, but what they're saying is that it, it, it came from one individual or maybe two individuals eating raw meat from a bat or a snake or something. And just think about that. I mean, th- think about that moment. Don't, don't you wish you could like go to the moment when that was actually happening? It was just a few months ago. And find that person and say, please don't do this. <laughs> please do not eat this meat. I, I know that it looks like an appetizing meal right now, but it is going to cause incredible havoc for the entire world. You you don't know what you are about to unleash if you eat this meal. But of course, we weren't there, and they did eat the meal, and this virus has been spreading out the world from that moment to this, and that's exactly what sin has done. It's infected all of us. As I've been saying, I've been been thinking a lot about Romans 5.12, It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin, this this disease, this self-centeredness, this lack of awareness of God, this, this falling out of God's order, this singing a different song, if you will, singing our own song instead of God's song, it's infected all of us. We... And we know it's infected all of us because all of us sin. We, we know that we are the sons and daughters of Adam because we all do like our father has done. Sin has been spreading out since the fall, and we are now a part of the problem. And therefore, we all experience pain. You know, I could say it this way. This is very simple. What is pain? Pain is feeling the effect of separation from God. What is pain and suffering? God created a world that was orderly, that was right, where there was only a knowledge of good. But pain is feeling the effect of separation from God. Pain is feeling the effect of disobedience. 
when you sin, when you run from God, you feel pain. You feel the pain of separation. But even when you don't sin, because we live in a world that's so infected by sin, we feel the pain. We feel the cracking of this world. In Romans 8, Paul says that the whole creation is groaning, waiting to be renewed, waiting to be called back into the chorus, waiting to be set right. So we just need to understand we live in this broken world. Pain has entered the world. We, we, without the renewal of Christ, we, without the redemption that comes in Christ, we are separated from God, and there is pain in that. That has caused great, great pain. And of course, the Christians, and we're going to talk about this later, we do have the hope of renewal. We do have the hope of being restored back to God. But for now, we've got to learn how to endure this world. But in God's providence, even this pain, even the pain that we experience, can actually be a good for us. And so I want to move now to just some lessons of pain, some things that that pain teaches us. And and the first thing is the lessons of pain. The, the, The first thing that we can gain from pain it's just some lessons of pain. You know, as I get into this, I, I want to say at first that, that all pain is actually a grace. You know, God could have, God said to Adam and Eve, when you eat, if you eat of this fruit, you'll die. God could have just ended all of existence right there as soon as man and woman fell out of step with him, but he didn't. He actually allowed them to keep living with pain, pain that reminds them a curse that reminds them of their need for him. He, he allowed Adam and Eve to go outside of the garden where they were kept from the presence of God, as if to remind them how good the presence of God is. And so I just want to say this, the fact that we are even able to survive now is God's patience. It is his grace to us. He's reminding us through this pain that, that we should be with him that there is something better. We, we know that this is not right, and that is grace. But pain is also for us an incredible teacher. You know, I don't know of a better teacher. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 talks about this. He, he, he talks about how he's gotten all these revelations from God, but he says, but in order for me to keep from getting arrogant in that, God actually has allowed me to have this thorn I ask God to remove this thorn from me, but God is, is allowing me to have this thorn, this, this thorn that pricks me. And it reminds me, as he says, my grace, that God's grace is sufficient for you. My power, as he's quoting the word of the Lord here, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, in my pain, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak in Christ, you could say, then I am strong. In Romans 5, the same Paul says, verse 3, we rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character, godly character, produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who he has given to us. You see, I want you to see this. God wants us to be complete. God wants us to have his character. God wants us to be like him. God wants us to reflect his qualities. And the character that, of course, God is talking about here is the fruit of the Spirit, 
the, the, the attributes that are true of the Spirit of God that He desires to be true of us, fruit like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. As we live these fruits out, as this character is produced in our lives, we actually prove ourselves to be like God. We, we prove ourselves to be reconciled to God. But here's the deal. We often need pain to, to create this, to, to produce this in our lives. None of you are naturally self-controlled. Believe me, I'm, I, I have three stir-crazy kids in my house right now. None of us are naturally self-controlled. That doesn't come by natural birth, right? No, we're, we're actually self-uncontrolled. We actually are incredibly self-serving. We're, we're, we're foolish, and we, we only think about our immediate passions and desires. But you know how you get self-control? You know where you get self-control? It's, it's when you get wisdom. And how do you get wisdom? You get wisdom when you endure the pain of being unwise, when you make a foolish decision that really hurts you, when you allow those passions to get out of control and, and, and for that to sting you, that's how you understand, that's how you know the value of self-control and you begin to control yourself. You know when you get love, real love? You know how you get love, this lovely character? It's when you endure hard things with people. Talk to a couple that's been married for 50 years. It's been through death of friend and death of parent, death of maybe brother or sister, that's raised children together, that's maybe been through job loss together, that's faced financial crisis together. Talk to that couple and tell me that pain wasn't a teacher for them in the times of hardship. You want to have joy in something? You want to have joy in your job? You want to really love your job? Get fired for a year. Be out of work for a year and then go back to the exact same job that you had last year and tell me if you don't love it. And you're not joyful in it. You're not grateful for it. You know, you want to have peace? Go live in Syria for a couple years. And tell me that you don't have peace when you live here. Don't, don't you see pain, suffering? God, God is actually using this to teach us. It's not his fault. It's not, it's, not, it's not what ultimately he commanded us to obey him and to only experience his good. But, but now, even in this fallen state, there is a completeness that he's working out in us in this. He uses this pain to do something glorious in us. And I just want to say, you'll be miserable in your pain until you realize this. You won't be able to find joy in your pain and suffering until you realize that God is actually producing something in you. He's actually making you to be a complete man or woman. And there's an old hymn writer and actually a hymn publisher. He he published this hymn book that really guided a lot of the hymn books that we still have today named John Rippon. And he wrote this book called How Firm a Foundation, or a song, this hymn called How Firm a Foundation. And he says, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame will not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. This is what God is doing through fiery trials in you. He's, he's, he's ultimately, if you are in Christ, he's actually ultimately out for your good. He's consuming your dross. He's consuming the, the parts of your character that don't reflect him, and he's refining the parts that do. And, and don't be so arrogant to say that you, you don't need this. We, we need our dross consumed. We need our gold refined. 
And we shouldn't be so proud to think that trials won't come our way to do this. So we've talked about some of the lessons of pain, but, but secondly, I want to talk with you about the opportunity of pain. Don't miss this. Don't miss this, Christ Covenant. I, I, I so hope we see this. There's an opportunity right now. The church has always had an opportunity of growth in the time of suffering. The church has always found a way to grow when it suffers the most. There's a second century church father named Tertullian. It said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And Tertullian saw a great persecution. He lived during the time of Marcus Aurelius, which was the Roman Empire. If you've seen the movie Gladiator, he was the Roman emperor during the time of that movie or when that movie was set. He's an interesting guy in the movie, but he was a, he was a pretty bad guy in real life. He hated Christians. He put, he put numerous, thousands and thousands of Christians to death. But, but he, every time he killed a Christian, you know what happened? More people joined the church. More people started following Christ. The, the harder the Romans tried to put this Christian movement down, the more that the church grew. And this has been true throughout church history. And you ask, why is that? Why is that? And here's why. It's, it's because of the way that Christians were able to suffer. They were able to suffer in a world when, when most people suffer, they lose heart, they lose hope. But, but these Christians were actually able to suffer in such a way with great courage and poise. And actually, they had great compassion for the people that were causing them to suffer. They were actually loving their enemies through this suffering. And as people saw this and as people saw how they, they responded, they, they were blown away. They didn't know what to do with it. It created a stir. It showed that their faith was actually genuine. There's this great exchange also in the second century between Pliny the Younger and Trajan. And Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman governor in Asia Minor, he reaches out to the emperor Trajan. He says, look, I'm putting all these Christians to death. But I really kind of ask, why are we doing this? They're our best citizens. They're not stealing. They're not committing adultery. They really work hard. They're righteous people. Why are we putting them to death just because, and he says, of their superstitions, just because they believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? But even in that, they were speaking to the governor. Their, their conduct was good and right. It was honorable, even in the face of persecutions. reminds me of a passage in 1 Peter 2 where Peter writes to the church, this is to you, this is to us. You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that through us God may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once in your sin you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Now, Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And watch this. He said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles in this world to abstain from the passions of the flesh, right? I think, therefore, I am. Don't, don't fall back into your unself-controlled and unloving and unpatient, not character of Christ kind of way. But no, abstain from these passions. They wage war against your soul, but keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you, when, when you're persecuted, when you're hard-pressed, they actually will see your good deeds and give glory to God on the day of visitation. This is a great moment for the sake of the gospel. 
Don't you see that you are the people? You are the chosen race. You are the people of God's own possessions. You are the ones that God wants to proclaim his excellencies through. This is a dark time, but it's in the dark times. It's in the moments of pain and suffering that actually the people of God have shown the character of God most fully and most rightly. So don't retreat now. I just want to say this. Don't retreat now. I hope your posture isn't to retreat. Lean into this. Be active. Be a good citizen. Go outside. Talk to your neighbors. Stay good social distance spacing away. But be friendly. Be kind. Think of ways to serve people. Work hard in your jobs. This is not a vacation. Go be useful in your work. Keep your job afloat. Prove yourself as one who works hard. This is a great opportunity. Christians don't retreat. We lean in. Look, I'm not a public health specialist. I'm not a, I don't know, how, vaccine specialist. I don't know how to create medicine or vaccines for this. I wish I did, but there's a lot I can do, and there's a lot you can do. You know, maybe if you're in a position in your company to hire people, it, it, come up with some work. Maybe there's some work right now that you could give somebody a job for a few weeks that's out of at work. Your company can afford that. It may be a little bit of a pinch for your company, but man, how, how awesome would that be to be able to minister to a person in that practical way? You know, maybe give a gift card to a healthcare worker who's really on the front lines of this disease. You can give donations to the Atlanta Food Bank, helping those who are hungry and in need. You can do that right on the webpage that we've set up, the landing page for all of uh, this corona crisis that we're facing as a church. It's called Scatter. There's a tab right there on the Christ Covenant webpage. There's a way to also support people within our congregation that are being put out of their jobs. You know, if you were laid off, don't, don't retreat. Don't just sit back. This is an amazing time to go and uh, get a job at Amazon or maybe a grocery store, one of these sitter services that are hiring right now. And, and I know that's not probably your ideal career scenario, but go there in the way of Christ. Realize that life is more than your career. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're, you're the people of God's own possession that he wants to proclaim his excellencies through. There is an opportunity in pain. And Christians have always throughout church history had a way of rising up in these times. And when people see our good works, they give glory to God. People, Christians don't shrink back. We, we, we lean in and we can lean in because of the last two things, things I want to talk about. We have great comfort in pain and great hope in pain. You know, at the, at the final judgment... Uh, Jesus kind of talks about this in Matthew 25. He says that the people will come to him and he'll separate people, put some on their right and some on their left. And to one group, he'll say, look, come and inherit the kingdom because I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you clothed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in sick and in, uh, uh, I was sick and in prison and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And he says to the righteous that, well done, when you did this, you, you were doing it to me. But, but at the same scene, he says to the people, the, the unrighteous, and he says, look, there was a time when I was sick and in prison and naked and, and you didn't do it to me. You didn't do any of these things to me. And the, and the people came to him, the, the, the unrighteous people, and they said, Lord, when did we see you sick? <laughs> when did we see you naked? When did we see you in prison? When did we see you doing any of these things? And I, and I, I, I want you to see in this, 
Jesus has this way. He doesn't say, when you did these things to the least of these people, you honored me. No, he actually says, when you did these things, you did it to me. It's the sufferer that Jesus most identifies with. It's the one who's in pain that Jesus most deeply knows. The one who's in prison, the one who's sick, the one who's an outcast, the one who's naked. That, that's, that's who Jesus identifies with. And, and, and when those people came to him and said, when did, when did we see you like this? I can almost see Jesus saying, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Did you not see that I was arrested and beaten? Do you not see that I was poor and lonely? Do you not see do you not see who I am? We have a Lord who is a sufferer. He's acquainted with grief. He identifies with us in every way. Jesus lost loved ones. Some of his best friends were killed. He was betrayed. His best friends left him alone at his hour of greatest need. Jesus was poor. He had nothing really to, to, to count for his own possession except for one garment, he was humiliated. And, and, and he was put to death. He was lynched. And ultimately, Jesus identified with, with all of our shame and guilt on the cross. Don't you see? Jesus, Jesus is a fellow sufferer. And so whatever you're, you're doing, you, you, can, you can look at the cross and know that you have a Savior in Christ who is not far. Actually, it's, it's when you're in pain. It's, it's when you're hurting in the deepest way. That's when Jesus identifies with you the most. That's when you can actually know him the most intimately. He was a man acquainted with grief. He was a man of many sorrows. A great remedy for your suffering is looking to the cross. There's great comfort there. But an even better remedy is looking forward to what the cross has accomplished for you. You know, I said before that pain and suffering, they're the effects of being separated from God. They're the effects of being separated from God. God created a, a world of perfect peace and order, and pain and suffering, it's the effect of, of the distance between us and God that's caused by sin. But I, I want you to hear this. There's only one suffering that lasts forever. There's only one pain that lasts forever. And that is the suffering, the pain of being separated with God forever. That's, that's the only pain, that's the only suffering that won't be resolved. And so I just want to encourage you, in, in your pain and suffering, don't run from the Lord. Run to him, look to him. He is a sufferer with you. There's only one pain that lasts forever. There's only one pain that really goes on. This is a pain that, that, that none of us were designed for. And so look to the Lord now. Look to Jesus because there's actually great hope even in this pain. There's great hope in what Christ has accomplished for you. You know, one day as Christians, we believe that the creation will be restored. Its groaning will be over. It'll be like that scene in The Magician's Nephew when everything is singing in harmony with God again. Nobody will be singing to their own various tunes, but no, there'll be one chorus, united, renewed, restored. Jesus says in Revelation 21, I am making all things new. And the word new there is the Greek kainos. It's, it's not chronos, which means new in terms of time. It's kainos, which means new in terms of quality. I'm making all things that do exist new. I think a better word is even renewed. I'm renewing all things. I'm making all things better than they ever were. This is what Jesus is doing 
And he's actually doing it even through your pain and suffering. This also reminds me of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, where he's talking about pain, he's talking about death, and he says death is going to be swallowed up in victory. There is going to be a victory that is so great that it's even going to swallow up death. You know, I, I've been eating a lot during this coronavirus thing. I, I don't know why. Maybe it's just I'm anxious. Maybe I'm just at home more and there's food around my house. But I've been noticing I've been eating a lot. And you know what happens when you eat a lot? You get bigger. When you swallow stuff, it, it has an effect. It makes you bigger. And I, I just want you to hear this. The victory of Christ is going to swallow up death. The victory of Christ is, is going to swallow up pain. The victory of Christ is going to swallow up fear and anxiety and loss and heartache and sadness and tears. Don't you see? The pain that you're enduring now, the tragedy that we face now, the fear that we face now, the anxiety that we face now, the lack of peace that some of us have right now, it's all going to be swallowed in the victory of Christ. And that victory, because of what we're enduring now, is going to be so much bigger and so much greater and so much higher and so much wider than it ever could have been without these trials. That is a great hope. The hope of the Christian is that all of this heartache will one day be swallowed up in the great victory of Christ. This is, this is a temporary suffering but it's achieving for us a victory that lasts forever. And so I want to I wanna close um, by asking you there in your own homes, this is kind of unique, we've never done this before, but I want to close by asking you to join me in a communion service. And Matt's going to begin to play for us. And I just, uh, I hope that you have um, gotten some elements there in your home. Um, I realize that you may not have the, the matzo bread that we normally use, but you can just use bread that's in your home there. And I, I do ask that, you know, you, you treat this with all sincerity and, and very seriously that it, even though it's a little different, you, you treat it as a, as a holy meal, as, as, as a sacred thing that God has given us. But as you think about these elements, I'm going to ask you that you'll just be preparing them now as Matt leads us in this song. We're going to take them here in a few moments, but I want, as you think about these things, to, to encourage you to, to meditate in, in one of two directions, in both directions. To first look back to the cross. When Jesus said that his, his body was broken, that he endured our pain, he endured all our shame, he endured all the pain that, that we should have endured before God, and through his pain, through his cross, we're invited back in. We're actually invited back into the garden. We're invited back into the presence of God because Christ has suffered on our behalf. And so I invite you to, to meditate on that, what Jesus has done for us by his body and by his blood. But I also invite you at this time as we sing together and as we meditate on these things to look forward, to look forward to the day when this wine and this bread will be a celebration. It'll be a feast in the presence of Christ himself. And we'll be with him in his kingdom, rejoicing over this great victory and realizing these pains and these trials that we endure now, they've all made the victory greater. All, they've made the celebration sweeter, more lasting, more hopeful. So look back and look forward as we meditate on these things, as we look to Jesus.
And now I invite you to join us as we sing.